This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Together, indeed. This was a contentious one, gotta say. The deal for Athena Health, $5.7 billion, announced this morning. Private equity firm Veritas Capital, uh, prodded along by Elliott Management, uh, which has been in this stock for quite some time. And want to get into this deal because it has been a doozy, to say the least. Uh, Nabila Ahmed is Bloomberg News M&A reporter, joining Taylor and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hi, Nabila. Hi, guys. So this was one that wasn't totally unexpected, but a, a bit of a long and winding road to get here. Tell us about it. Yeah, look, we found out in about May that Elliot had taken a stake in Athena Health. Elliot had some issues. It was not happy with management. It was not happy with the performance. Had some ideas about how to fix all of that. They also made, uh, at the time, a bit of an offer saying, you know, we may be able to buy this company for $160 a share, depending on due diligence. So the company then put itself up for sale. As you say, it's been a long and windy and quite a dramatic road. Remember, since then, Jonathan Bush, the CEO, has had to step down after some sexual harassment allegations came to light and also the physical abuse allegations that his wife had made against him so that it hasn't been a very straight up road um, the company after it put itself up for sale found that a lot of the private equity bidders who looked at the books were sort of like eh, don't know yeah. about 160 well and, and we should remind people that you know elliott management of course is paul singer's shop it is known i think it's fair to say for some having some relatively sharp elbows when it comes to its own activism, you know, notably involved in some sovereign uh, activism, Argentina really being, you know, the the best uh, example of that. What specifically did LA management and the activists see about this company that they didn't like that they now think they can do better? So Elliot hones in on companies where, you know, the performance hasn't been good and they can see the upside. So they came in and said, talked about uh, they didn't like the plan for improving margins. They didn't like how the company was being managed. Um, And, you know, since then, you can see that since they did come in, like the few quarters, the past few quarters, results haven't been that great. And what they think they can fix now is one of the things about this deal that's a Veritas Capital buying it. Veritas already owns a business that it's going to merge this with. And remember, they bought that business out of GE a few months ago last year, actually. And so they can they get synergies and that business. So Athena Health is a business that works with physician practices. And the GE business works a little bit further up the chain. Um, GE has a great back office and efficient systems. Athena has a great interface and and uh, sort of its web systems on the front end are really good. So they are a good match. Well, and just to bring it all full circle, of course, the chairman of, Ath- of, of Athena Health is none other than Jeff Immelt, the exactly. former CEO of General Electric. So you can start to see how uh, this came together. Uh, So what else does this tell us? What, if anything, does this tell us, uh, Nabila, about sort of private equity appetite, either in this space, private equity activity, or or M&A activity in general? Look, what it says about private equity is that you're seeing that increasingly that business is becoming commoditized. Credit is really cheap. 
equity, they are awash with so much cash. So the, the differentiator here for Veritas, they were able to beat out much bigger players like TPG, Bain Capital, Tom and Bravo. And the reason they were able to do that is because they had the synergies. This combination. Exactly. Yeah. So increasingly, it's becoming about private equity as pseudo corporate buyer, really. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because this was a, a relatively sought after asset. You know, once Elliot sort of put it effectively uh, in play and, you you know, you get a sense now uh, as to why they were able to uh, to pay what they did. Well, in this, the healthcare space in general has been very interesting to be like, I wonder what this sort of says about healthcare M&A. A lot of this space uh, is changing. We have CVS and Aetna. You have a lot of pharmacy benefit managers like Express Scripts all trying to merge is this another one where you're playing catch up to stay ahead? And if you don't merge, you're going to be left behind. Well, this is about healthcare services and healthcare tech. And ex- exactly, healthcare has been pretty behind on that front. And for private equity, this is a really great space to play in because it services businesses. They can earn a lot of money out of it. They're generally good cash flow generators. And for them who are, again, awash with cash, they're yeah. looking for places to invest in healthcare services. My sources tell me it's going to be the big Place. All right. So, Nabil, we have you here. We got to ask you, what else is in your notebook? What are you hearing from people? Are we you know, going to wind down toward, toward the end of the year here in M&A world? Or are we going to have one final push before uh, it turns to 19? It feels like we're in a race to the end of the year. It feels like over the past couple of weeks, we've had so many deal announcements. And remember that some people thought the midterms might have had a bit of an impact, might have slowed things down a little. That hasn't happened at all. Mm. And we're hearing... You you know, there are still big deals obviously being done. Like there was this deal. There are a few others like this that have been in the pipeline for a little while. Acadia is another healthcare company and that, that sale process is ongoing. There are a few like that. And then, then you seeing some big tech deals, you know. Right. So is that it? Healthcare and tech are the two big, you know, <laughs> M&A sectors where we're seeing a, a rush to the end. Are those the two biggest? That's not all. <laughs> um, remember, media is another sector that yeah. I cover, and that's been mm-hmm. very busy as well. And like you said, Taylor, it's all about the rush to get better technology, and mm-hmm. it's about the convergence of these areas. Everyone's still wondering when does Amazon or Netflix come in and buy a media company. And tech, you've seen tech. Tech stocks have been hit so hard that everybody's looking at them. You saw that IBM Red Hat deal a couple of weeks right. ago. Everyone's looking at tech stocks. You know what? This is that has a country twang to it. And what I really like is our next guest is joining us from Texas. Yeah. Texas Muni Bonds, we're gonna get into this, are actually the school districts down there and their Muni Bonds are very, very powerful. Uh, I want to broaden it out first, though. I don't want to get trapped too much in my Texas theme here. Joining us is Charles Durain. Let's bring him in. President, Chief Executive Officer of Durain Wealth Management. Charles, it's great to have you. I first want to talk about uh, the elections. You know, we had midterms last week. That's behind us. A lot of investors, especially in the municipal bond space, are hoping that the election results can provide us some clarity moving forward. I think the big question on people's minds is infrastructure. The muni market desperately wants infrastructure. Is this something that the Democrats and Trump can actually agree on? And how is the muni market pricing in any sort of infrastructure deal that could get done? 
Okay. First of all, I'm Charles Duran. Today's information is not intended as a recommendation nor investment advice. Duran Wealth Management Group is a branch of Next Financial Group, member of FINRA SIPC. Hi. How are you today? Great to have you. Good. All right. So here, here's a couple of things. On the ballots, okay, Mm -hmm. nationwide, Mm -hmm. 67% of all the infrastructure build-out deals were passed, actually. And it was about... $76 $76 billion was the value of that, so roughly $50 billion in infrastructures, which includes bridge tunnels, schools, and everything else, passed. And there was about 700 of these all over the United States. Um, in Texas, they passed here in Nueces County. Um, in fact, uh, for, the, for everything we had, it all passed. Um, it was... Um, very interesting election, as you know, between uh, on the Senate level between Ted Cruz as well as uh, Beto, uh, Mr. O'Rourke, right. uh, was known as Beto. So it was pretty close. I think it's about 150,000 uh, ballots separating the, the winner and the loser. But everybody seemed to pass, seemed to want to have new infrastructure. Okay. Right. I want to ask you about that. When we talk about the bonds on the ballots that were being passed, what does that say about the state of austerity? That voters are actually willing to maybe see their taxes go up, willing to pay for debt because they really do want their infrastructure and their roads and their bridges fixed. Correct? Well, it's time. Yes, it's time, though. It's time. We haven't a lot of this stuff uh, throughout the last 10 years was not passed because, well, we were in a financial crisis. So now that things are better. And I think we can all agree things are better that people are willing to spend money on making things even better. And of course, when you spend this 50 billion or more on infrastructure, there are more jobs, more opportunities, all sorts of things happen. Cities get a chance to revitalize themselves. And in Texas, we're growing pretty fast. Right. Things are good down here, as you know. Absolutely. Uh, And so, Charles. How likely is it, given the, shall we say, fractious relationship between the administration and the Congress and certainly the the two parties at this point, how likely is it that the government, at least on a federal level, is able to act and support, you know, some of these initiatives? Or do we not need the federal government to get involved? This is going to happen at the state and local level. I think it's going to happen at the state and local level because they voted it. Um, I don't know how many of these projects say that it's necessary for federal matching funds. In fact, in Oasis County, where I am, none of it is. It's all our money. We're going to sell some bonds, and we're just going to get it done. And, and by the way, when we're talking about municipals, I think we have to talk about the rates. This is important. We have the highest rates of municipals that we've had in a long time. Uh, if you live in New York, on a 30-year bond, you can get a... Oh, uh, 3.77. In California, 3.54. Texas is 3.65. And if you live in Illinois and you like a little bit of risk, 5.08%. So these rates are terrific tax-free compared to the Treasury at 318 or uh, for 10-year or 337 for the 30-year. So municipals offer a lot of value. And this year, we didn't do as much as last year in terms of uh, what what came to market last year about 434 billion came to market that includes all kinds of municipals this year we're right now at about 200 and let's call that about 280 billion and there could probably be another 15 stretch maybe to 
to, to 20. So we're going to be way down year over so year. So let me talk to you about that because with lower supply, just going based on supply and demand technicals, you would think that demand would outweigh supply and that would boost performance. And yet that isn't the case. When I yes. take a look at the Bank of America Municipal Securities Index for the year, we're off about 1.2%. We're posting our worst performance on a yearly basis since 2013. Where is performance? Are you clipping coupons because you're not getting it with rising rates? Well, rising rates are hurting things, but when rates stop rising, all of a sudden they start helping things. Remember, interest rates used to be much higher. I mean, a 5% municipal was, was just kind of an average thing 10 years ago. Then it was down to almost nothing. Now we're over 3 and 5 in some places. So what I would tell you is I would expect Congress to not get much done. I would expect it to be a fight. I would expect economic activity to dial back a little bit next year because of what's going on, what's about to go on in Congress. And so as economic activity slows, we're going to get less from the Fed in terms of rate increase, and we're going to get better performance out of both municipals, corporates, and treasuries. And so, Charles, if you think about the money that that is going to be necessary to get these projects done, how much does the private sector have to step in? Because there's been a lot of money raised on the private side, in part based on some enthusiasm around what the president has said about infrastructure spending. How how robust do you see the, the appetite for you know a private equity type style investment here? I don't see it at this time, because if it's going to require any legislation at all, you've got to have both houses pass it. Right. And I don't see that happening. I think we're in a stalemate there. I think the city, state, local governments, school districts have the money. They're just going to go ahead and get this done. And if if things change and the federal government could kick in some money, I think that's a plus. But um, we start out with... We have the money to do these deals now on a city, state, local basis. So quickly, we talk about rising rates, and you mentioned the economy was slowing a little bit. Does that mean you go down in credit or out in duration? Out in duration. Good. Good. Thank you. I like that. All right, that's a good short answer. It's radio, so you could do short answers here. Thank you. Charles Durain, President and Chief Executive Officer of Durain Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Corpus Christi, Texas. I believe this is Tedeschi Trucks. Try again. I'm lost. All right, tell me. Eric Clapton. Oh. Eric and the Dominoes. But I feel like I heard Tedeschi Trucks cover this. They may very well have. I mean, all right. I thought it was the Tedeschi Trucks version. Sorry. No. no. All right, Dave Wilson is right back to the original. I know. You You are the OG. Yeah. What can I say? Anyway, I mean the chart is really kind of at odds to some extent with what we're seeing today because if you look at what's going on as stocks fall the russell 1000 growth index down 2.3 percent on the day that's roughly twice as much as the russell 1000 value index so that growth versus value pendulum has kind of swung the other way and i say that because you know there was this chart that uh, I think it was the folks at Zero Hedge put up on Twitter, and supposedly it came from Bank of America Merrill Lynch, and it looked at year to year the gap in performance between these two indexes with a focus on growth because you know, we know that's where 
investors have been focusing, you know, throughout the bull market pretty much. And so you go back to last year, uh, that growth index was ahead of the value index by almost 15 percentage points. And as of late last week, when I did the chart, it was ahead by another eight points. And that two-year performance, assuming it holds up and what we're seeing today doesn't uh, sort of carry on much further, it would be the best two years <clears throat> since 1998 and 99, which happened to be the last two years of that internet-driven bull market of the 90s, often referred to as a bubble. So it's certainly something to watch. Now, back then, you know, the two-year gap was 49 points. We're not close to that now. Nonetheless, it is something that gets your attention. And if you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll send you the chart, the explanation that goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. And thank you so much, Dave Wilson. You'll be back with us in just a bit for your stock of the day. All right, let's turn to the most read story on the Bloomberg terminal. To no one's surprise, uh, Hannah Levitt has the story. Bigger bonuses are coming for almost everyone on Wall Street. Hannah joins Taylor and myself in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hannah, great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So what's going on out there? People getting excited and who is the most excited? So bonuses are going up pretty much across the board. Um, I, the most excited is going to be equity traders and salespeople. Uh, they'll see a jump as high as 20%. So that's pretty substantial. And probably given all the volatility we've been seeing, I mean, especially in October mm -hmm. and even today as we sort of just bring it to the present moment. Um, it is also kind of caught my eyes. We talk about some of the people that are not getting bonuses, which I believe is the M&A sector. Mm -hmm. We just spoke with our M&A reporter, Nabila Ahmed, and she said it's sort of a race to the finish to get a ton of deals done. Mm -hmm. Why isn't that translating into bonuses? So that same volatility that's um, giving a boost to the equity traders is harming the um, the M&A advisors in terms of their bonuses. Uh, people are not as quick to want to do those deals when the markets are jittery, which they have been. Uh, so, that, so that's really what's well, and Taylor, I'm sure you noted, and you knew that I was going to bring it up, number two on Hannah's list behind equity sales and trading, private equity, sort of tied I for roll. number two, five to 10%. Taylor literally rolled her eyes. Like you actually <laughs> rolled your eyes at that. But <laughs> no, I mean, I what's it. interesting about that is volatility, to Hannah's point, is something right. that private equity actually likes uh, a little bit more and, and they can get some deals done. What else jumped out uh, at you as you went through these numbers, Hannah? Um, yeah, so pretty much, I mean, hedge funds, asset managers, those are all kind of in the 5%, 10% range. Uh, we have underwriting is also there. Uh, so it really is just the just the investment banking that could see even a drop, although it's worth noting that um, they generally have the highest in absolute terms in terms of bonuses. We should note that this is all according to a consultant, Johnson Associates, which comes out with this report and, mm -hmm. and talks about, you know, raises, which, of course, is, is very closely watched. Um, 19, what's going to happen? Not as rosy, um, according to Johnson Associates. Yeah, why not? So um, geopolitical tensions, uh, fee pressure are a couple of things that uh, Alan Johnson, who runs this, yeah. listed. Yeah. All right. Well, a lot to watch coming up. And, you know, maybe everybody will sort of hoard those bonuses when they get paid out in February, you know, sort of nestle themselves right. in. You know, you, you feel bad for those bankers when they don't make Well, you know, and those, I'm always curious, too, what's driving it. Like, we've talked about volatility. Yeah. And is it just a better global macroeconomic environment? And if 
that's not happening in 2019. What does that say? So mm -hmm. there you go. Hannah Let's Levitt, see. banking reporter for Bloomberg, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. The most read story on the Bloomberg. And I'm guessing it is almost, I'm just checking really quick, probably also one of the most emailed. Oh, uh, yeah, it's one of the most emailed as well because everybody is sending it to their bro, being like, <laughs> we're going to celebrate uh, come the turn of the year. Well, hanging on the telephone, maybe hanging on to their telephones, uh, if you believe what some folks in the market are saying. What some folks in the market are saying, Taylor, right now is sell Apple. <laughs> that is for sure. And it is dragging a lot of the market down. Ryan Vlastelica is equities reporter covering tech, media, and telecom for Bloomberg. Joining Taylor and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. So, this is the talk of the market today. What's going on with Apple that is making people so sad? Well, it's funny because all of this is really starting with a very small company named Lumentum, which is less than $3 billion in market cap. And now they came out and they cut their second quarter outlook, basically saying that they're unnamed giant customer was <laughs> meaningfully pulling back on its order shipments that have already been uh, made. Now they're cutting them back. Everyone quickly deduced that it's probably Apple, who is their uh, biggest customer by far. I think last year in 2017, they derived about 40% of their revenue from Apple. Now, this is the latest uh, example that we've gotten that maybe things are not great with respect to Apple's iPhone and their demand prospect going forward. So first we had Apple's results where it said, we are no longer going to tell you how many units we're selling every month, which is really the sort of thing you would brag about if right. you were selling a lot of units every quarter. You and don't then, tell people less when things are awesome, right? Right. Now, in Apple's defense, they are spending, they are making a lot more money from their services business. They have a lot of other product categories like AirPods, like the watch, uh, so on and so forth that are doing well. But by now, the iPhone has gotten uh, basically good enough that customers don't need to buy every new generation. So I just want to touch on Lumentum because the ticker is light, which I really like, L-I-T-E, Lyco, and they're off 32% because they did speculate that Apple might be their biggest customer. And on our supply chain analysis, we have, they get about 30% of their revenue from Apple. So this is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And I want to broaden this out to talk about other supply chain concerns. Are there other companies besides Lumentum that have sort of hinted that one of their largest customers, which we think could be Apple or another maker of a phone, are starting to see some some slowdowns? And is this an Apple problem, an iPhone problem, or is this a smartphone problem? Well, it it probably is a problem for Apple in the, to the extent that they are seeing less demand. But like I just mentioned, they are seeing... Uh, growth in other areas like services that is providing a little bit of insulation. I mean, obviously, the stock is uh, seeing some pretty big declines, and it has been ever since it's reported its results. But for the tech sector more broadly, this is just the latest sign that, you know, this has been really the best performing sector for years. And then for the past couple of months, we've gotten Amazon warning about its growth. We got Alphabet warning about its growth. 
last quarter, we had Facebook warning about its growth. We had a bunch of semiconductor companies, notably AMD and Texas Instruments, both warn about their growth. Yeah. So right now, we're kind of getting this from all sides. And this is really the sector that was almost single-handedly lifting the markets this year. Well, and I'm glad you pointed that out about the chips. And we're going to talk to Ian King later on in the show about what's happening across the board there in semiconductor land. You know, the SOX, the Philadelphia Stock Exchange Semiconductor Index. That is off 3.8% uh, at the moment, certainly getting hit hard. And, you know, as you point out in your story today, Ryan, Cirrus Logic, Corvo, Broadcom, all down, uh, you know, arguably or presumably on this weakness uh, that we're seeing from Apple. What do they need to do to turn it around? What will give investors confidence in your estimation? Well, I've actually been speaking to semiconductor analysts and investors who are becoming pretty optimistic about chip makers at these levels right ah, now. I did have someone who said, I will give you a 90% chance that the low that was posted in late October for the SOX is going to be the low for the year. So now a lot of these issues about demand, about uh, potential issues with China, these are now pretty well priced into the stock. The argument goes, and they continue to be pretty profitable. They are buying back a lot of stock. So it is possible that they are able to turn it around. But for the moment, you still have questions about trade. You still have bigger questions about demand because we only really have through uh, you know, the last quarter. Yeah. So there's still more stuff to come out. So talk to us about trade a little bit, because mm-hmm. in your story, um, you kind of break it down and say you could have a laser sensor or a chip that is in Taiwan, and then it's in Oregon, and then it's assembled in China, and then it gets finally assembled in Cupertino. And, and all of these trade fights can really break up the whole supply chain. How much of a concern has that been? Well, most chip makers get almost half of their revenue from China. Mm-hmm. In many cases, mm-hmm. it's more than 40%. So it is a huge issue. Now, we don't really know what the impact of this is going to be. If they come out with new tariffs, that is something we have to then account for. Uh, it's possible some people may have been buying stuff going into the quarter to kind of get ahead of this issue. And maybe that kind of uh, skewed what the quarterly results uh, looked like in a way that isn't exactly indicative of demand. Uh, right now, we just don't know. And later on this month, uh, towards the end of the month and early in December, we have um, the big meeting that's coming out on trade between right. the U.S. and China. Right. We really don't know what's going to happen there. Are they going to come to some kind of agreement? Are the tariffs going to be pulled back? Are new ones going to be thrown out there? We, we have no idea and until you do that. Wonderful. You don't know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Thank you for joining us. Ryan Vlasilica, equities reporter covering tech media and telecom for Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And we are heading into the drive to the close. We're about a 
10 minutes or so uh, from the closing bell. We came in this morning. Futures, some of them were green. We are headed lower. Don't want to panic, but the sell-off has accelerated a little bit into the close. Some of the things we're looking at, Jason, of course, has been the NASDAQ 100. That's off two and three quarters of a percent. The semiconductors are off four percent. So all things really um, tech in in focus today. No better person to talk about all of this than Kevin Divney. He's a senior portfolio manager over at Russell Investments. You really focus here on large cap equities. As you head into a day like this, what do you do? Does your thesis change? Do you, you can't sell. Uh, Do you buy? What's your thesis? It's healthy to question your thesis when you Mm -hmm. see market events because the markets are ultimate feedback loop. But um, as we saw in October, sell-offs like today are places where we see is the market disconnecting from underlying fundamentals. Uh, Tech is a great foil for that. Tech has the best fundamentals. There are parts of it that are more cyclical. Semis has been volatile. Uh, It's been up and down lately. That may be an early early indicator of a cyclical slowdown. But um, when you go through earnings, you see high profit margins. Um, you see retail tech, which is the, the fang world, which touches consumers, and that links to the Apple concerns today. But then the long-term secular spend of everything going to the cloud, enterprises, 400G, things like that that are coming down the pike, um, these companies are long-term parts of people's portfolios. And do enough people make that delineation between sort of retail tech and enterprise tech is that or or is that getting lost in the the kind of bloodbath as it were here in tech it gets very lost on days like today when you see everything being treated the same and that's what you see you see people just in a risk-off mode and pushing down everything and not even being discriminate so even if the fundamentals are shifting and the market's responding to that and perhaps pushing valuations down when you see these high correlations among things and you start to realize this is a place where there's a lot of noise you don't want to trade to point, uh, and perhaps you want to put a little more capital to work. When we talk about the consumer, as we've been mentioning, um, I want to talk about some of the the home builders. I know I woke up this morning, Bank of America had downgraded most of that sector. Concerns about affordability and rising rates. Uh, How do you make about the home builders, not to get too niche here on you, uh, but sort of that sector in, in terms of the consumer? Sure. And I think everybody has a lot of muscle memory about home builders, given what happened 10 years ago. So it's a little bit more of a bellwether than it ever has been. Um, Stepping back, though, the U.S. consumer looks very healthy. They are not at leverage levels below 2,000 at this point. Uh, We see the unemployment picture. The sector itself has to do with, I think, two major issues. One you pointed out, increasing interest rates. It's not the price of the home. It's how much I can afford per month. And interest rates are going to affect that. Also, I think there's been a lot of capacity uh, issues in the sector. If you look at the multifamily homes, there's been oversupply. Uh, You can see all the cranes here in New York, obviously, what's going on. So that's probably disconnected from the consumer health and more just about the home building segment itself. Well, and one of the interesting sort of pockets of strength, it feels like, or at least enthusiasm that's gained through the year, is retail. Uh, I'm not sure anybody saw that coming or would have predicted that at the beginning of eighteen. And uh, you were talking about earlier today the adaptation of the, re- of the retail sector, and I think that's been a real 2018 story. One, on the demand side, if you listen to CEOs from anywhere 
from companies that are at the low-end consumer to the high-end consumer. They're saying demand is intact through the end of this year. And they're all moving to omni-channel marketing. They're yeah. dealing with the Amazon threat. People need that experience of seeing the product, having a store being a flagship, an experience, a branding part of that, buying from the mobile device to delivery and everything else. So the retailing sector is the one, I think, a better barometer of consumer health than what's going on in the home builders, because that's a continuous purchase. You don't buy a home every year. Right. Another sort of a rotation that we talk about here is is growth versus value. We had a chart out today saying that U.S. growth stocks are poised really for their best two years versus value going back since 1990s. Unfortunately, the 90s were then the last time, uh, one of the last few times we Dave Wilson on talking about when there is a, a big bust. Why growth right now over value? Does that momentum trade continue? Do we buy into that? We may be at an inflection point, but a lot of investors have been saying that for some time. We have seen one of the largest growth value spreads over the last five years that we've ever yeah. seen in history. I have some folks sending me charts going back 80 years. Um, a lot of it has to do with profit margins. Profit margins keep on peaking. We are up 125 bips over last year. We just finished Q3, and margins exceeded expectations again. They're not being guided down. And so higher multiples on growth stocks is why that winning is starting to happen. Um, and the, the value sector is overweight, things that are growing slower, consumer staples, financials, and versus tech and consumer cyclicals. That's been the spread trade this year. And so what do you worry about as we get toward the end of the year? I mean, it, on a day like today with the market off like it is, you know, now the Dow off 630 points or so, you know, all the major indices down in the U.S. down more than 2%. Uh, what do you worry about beyond today as we think about the rest of uh, 18? Most of my concerns are outside the U.S. If you look at the U.S., we don't have a leverage problem. We don't have a valuation problem, especially now. Um, I think a deceleration in China that is beyond expectations and disrupting global demand. Uh, we already see potential risk of global supply chain disruptions, and that is something uh, that could really shock investors. That said, I think that makes U.S. a place to be in that environment. Quickly here, just touching on the financials, Goldman Sachs has its own issue going on with one MDB that's off almost 8%, but all the other financials are off anywhere from 2 to 3%. Is that a buying opportunity, or are there some concerns? Overall, I think adding to the sector is a prudent thing to do. They're more on the value side, so that yeah. can be a hedge and can be defensive, and they've been uncorrelated to the more volatile parts of the sector. Uh, but to your point, stock selection matters. Excellent. Kevin Divney, Senior Portfolio Manager, Russell Investments, based here in New York, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Thank you so much uh, for stopping by. Always good to get your perspective. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.